we want to begin considering what is the final recorded testimony of John the Baptist in all the Gospels. And this is, this is it. This is his final recorded testimony. We're going to see it's prior to his arrest. You know, those of you that know, know your Bibles, you know John the Baptist was arrested. He ends up getting executed. He gets beheaded at some point. This is before then. He's still active in ministry. And what I love about this testimony is we're going to get into the mind of this man toward the end of his earthly ministry. We're going to see how he was thinking. We're going to see what, what his mindset was toward his ministry and, and toward the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, oftentimes, people in ministry, success is one of the worst things for them. It's like they've got this bike pump connected to their head, and someone's just pumping that, you know, pumping that mug up. And, and, and John the Baptist could have been one of those guys because his ministry was just off the charts popular at one point in time. We're going to see that his last testimony, this last stage of life, he's got this adequate, incredible ministry goal. And and this is where application comes in for us. We can adopt, and we should adopt, I would venture to posit to you, we should adopt this same exact ministry goal. And and not to give you the spoiler alert, but in case anyone had a late last night and it's going to fall asleep between now and the end, verse 30. Here's a spoiler alert. John 3, verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. That should be the goal of every single one of our lives as a Christian. We need to get out of our way. We need to stop stop getting occupied with our feet. Stop occupied with our ministry. Stop being occupied with our agenda. Stop being occupied with whatever else that I didn't name that we're occupied with. You know you. I know me. This should be our heart's cry right here. He must increase. I must decrease. This should be what I've entitled life goal. Now, much of this morning is going to be leading up to John's testimony. And so as we kind of set the stage this morning, we're going to jump in right in verse 22. And it says, uh, verse 22, after these things... Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judah, Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now, John also was baptizing in Anion near Salim because there was much water there. Now, again, after these things, right, it's after, and we've kind of slowed down in John 3 with Nicodemus, but it's after Jesus' time in Jerusalem. Remember Jesus, end of chapter 2, he went to Jerusalem for, for the Passover feast. That's why he was there. He was doing miraculous signs, and then Nicodemus, a teacher of the Pharisees, came to him by night in Jerusalem. That's the conversation that we just covered. And so after this time in Jerusalem and following his interview with Nicodemus, this is where it puts us in the story. And what we learn is that Jesus and his disciples, they they move out from Jerusalem. It says they move uh, or they came into the land of Judea, and it, it says that they're moving into a new phase of ministry because before this, who was the one doing the baptizing? It was all John the Baptist. He was the one dunking everybody. And now we see in this verse that Jesus and his disciples started to baptize people. Kind of interesting. You know, you, you wonder what's going on there. Now, we are going to learn later. In fact, just jump ahead. It's just We can see it. it. It's fascinating because in John chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it says this, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. Look at verse 2. Though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples. (laughs) 
Kind of interesting. Here, here in our passage, it says that Jesus and his disciples were baptizing. And then in John 4, it says, but Jesus didn't baptize. And so I think the way you fit that together is just that Jesus was probably overseeing a, a water baptism ministry. And as we look at a map here, and kind of just run a quick timeline through the book of John, that, doesn't, that never shows up quite right for you, but y'all can kind of make it out. Mediterranean Sea there on the left, Sea of Galilee up top, Dead Sea down below, Jordan River connecting them. But if you recall back in John 1, Bethany on the east side of Jordan, or Bethar-Bera as some versions call it, this is where John identified Jesus as who? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus uh, began to do miracles. And some of John the Baptist's disciples, when John pointed out Jesus, they said, see you, John, we're, we're going to go with the Messiah. And I think John was like, good, go. I, I think he's shushing them to, to the Messiah. He's excited about that. And we'll see that even in his attitude later. But from there, we know that Jesus went north. That's where we pick up the wedding of Canaan and Galilee, the first of seven recorded signs where he turned water to wine. That was up north there. Then he comes back down to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. And now, most likely, he goes into the Judean countryside near a water source because they're baptizing. And this is, uh, kind of gives us uh, an idea in terms of geographically where he's at. So why was Jesus and his disciples baptizing others? It's a great question. We know that baptism doesn't save you. That's not why they were doing that. In fact, we went through that type of discussion when we went through John the baptism. Uh, John the Baptist ministry. Baptism, water baptism is simply a public way to identify with somebody's message. In fact, the only people that get baptized are people who have first believed the message. Otherwise, why would you go in the water? Otherwise, it's just a poor bath, right? And it's, I mean, baptism's not a, even a good bath. I mean, what kind of dirt are you going to get off just coming up and down? You know, that's a, that's a five-year-old boy bath. Okay, am I done? No, I mean, you got to scrub a little bit. You know, you got to get behind those ears a little bit. So baptism doesn't say, baptism doesn't wash away your sins. Only death pays the death penalty. As simple as that sounds, we, the wages of sin is death. We deserve the death penalty. Only death pays the death penalty. Imagine going into a courtroom, me saying, the judge, uh, you know, executes a sentence on me. You have the death penalty. And I say, Judge, actually, I would rather help old ladies across the street for the rest of my life. It doesn't work that way because death penalty requires a death payment. Baptism doesn't provide a death payment, but it does represent the mental mindset of somebody that's changed their mind, believed the message and said, you know what? I'm with this guy. I identify with this guy. And so Jesus and his disciples are doing the same exact thing now. And one of the things that we're going to see, and we're going to kind of break out here as a, kind of a side note here, is that Jesus, at this point in his ministry, began to reiterate John the Baptist's message. It was the gospel of the kingdom. Now, before we get confused, the gospel of the kingdom was good news. But it's a different message than the gospel of grace. Now, hopefully, if you've never heard that before, hopefully you'll, you'll bear with me for a second. The gospel of the kingdom is simply this. The kingdom is at hand and your king is here. That's good news. That was, that was good news for the Jew. Are you serious? The, the kingdom we've been looking forward to all of these many years prophesied about in the Old Testament, you're saying it's at hand and the king is actually here. And that was John's message. Remember, repent, change your mind, 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew 3, 2. We also learn in Matthew, Matthew 4, 17, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Your king is here. I'm ready to establish your kingdom. That was the good news of the gospel of the kingdom. And see, Jesus was using the same exact methodology of identification, public identification, with that message that John was using in water baptism. Now, this would have blown the Pharisees away. We're going to see later. They're always fighting with John the Baptist's disciples over the quote-unquote purification. And the idea is, why would you baptize a Jewish person? See, Jews didn't need to be baptized. They, They would ritually clean their hands. But Jesus and John's primary ministry was to Jewish people who needed to change their mind. What did they need to change their mind about? How they got into the kingdom. We just went through that with Nicodemus. Nicodemus said, I'm circumcised. Uh, I'm a Pharisee. I'm a son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm in. Nobody could keep me out. And Jesus said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Just being a son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's not enough. You got to be a son of God. And the way you become a child of God, as we've looked a million times through the book of John so far, is you got to believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's how you're born again. Even as Moses lifted up the serpent on the pole, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever, what, believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus and his disciples were now joining in the same exact ministry as John the Baptist, announcing the arrival of the king, announcing God's good news, uh, his desire to establish a long-awaited kingdom on earth. They were just uniting in their message. They were just uniting in their ministries. Now, one of the things that we learn about John the Baptist, Jesus was here, but our text, is that, text tells us that John the Baptist was further north, up here in Anon and, and Salim. It's, it, it looks like in John here on this map, it's Salem, um, but up in that area. So he's just up the Jordan River from them. Kind of Obviously, if you, you're baptizing people, you need water. Baptism doesn't work as well in sand, right? So it's got to be near a water source. And so both of them were there. They're a little bit further uh, up north. Now, one of the things that you're going to see, and this is what makes the Gospels all unique in terms of their, their audience and their purpose. When, when John is writing, he's not real focused. This isn't his purpose is to describe the kingdom offer to Israel. But you know what Gospel is primarily interested in that kingdom offer. And you kind of see this early stage of the ministry that John is just alluding to here is in the book of Matthew. In fact, you can trace Jesus all the way up to about Matthew 12. And we'll talk why about Matthew 12, where his primary focus is the gospel of the kingdom. Your king is here. I'm ready to establish the kingdom. And what he was looking for was national reception of him. And when national rejection took the place of national reception, the kingdom was pushed out, was postponed. And and then all of a sudden, he begins to talk about his death and his resurrection. He comes to the upper room discourse. He begins to talk about his church in Matthew 16. And these are all the things that if we had many, many weeks, we could develop further. But just as a quick side note, let's look at this different good news quickly, because as one pays close attention to the chronology of the life of Christ, one will notice that the gospel of the kingdom was different than the gospel of grace. I've kind of been alluding to this. The gospel of the kingdom uh, was John's message. Matthew 3, 1 through 2, I quoted earlier, repent for the kingdom of heaven's at hand. 
Jesus' message early on in his ministry, Matthew 4.17. Let me take you really quick, because you can actually trace this through the book of Matthew, but let me just jump you ahead, because I want you to see this in your own Bibles. Go to Matthew chapter 10 and verse 5. And if, and if you don't have this perspective, this, this passage is going to be very confusing. Because you're like, how does this fit with the Great Commission? What we're about to read Jesus saying as he sends out uh, the 12. Matthew 10, 5, these 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them saying, do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter a city of the Samaritans. And right there, you're like, wait a minute, is this Matthew? Wait a minute, is that in the Bible? Because I... I hear Matthew 28, I mean, it's cross-stitched on my wall, right? Go, into, go to all the world, right? Go to, go to the entire world, Mark 16. Preach the gospel to every creature. And you're, you come here, he says, ignore, stay away from the Gentiles, stay away from, from the Samaritans. How's that make you feel as a Gentile, by the way? Those of you that are Gentiles, man, I thought Jesus loved me. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm kind of being facetious, but we see this is a phase of ministry that Jesus is in. But notice what he says, verse 6, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and then notice what they're to preach. As you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons, freely you have received, freely give, so on and so forth. But you see, this was the message at this stage of the ministry, because he was offering legitimately the kingdom to the nation of Israel. Now, that's the gospel of the kingdom. That's not the appropriate gospel or good news that we preach today because the king's not here and the kingdom's not at hand. But you know what is at hand? Salvation. Salvation from the penalty of sin. So we preach the gospel of grace. Christ died for your sins and rose again. And guess what? There is a future date where the gospel of the kingdom is gonna come right back in and be the appropriate message. And guess when that's gonna be? In the tribulation period. Because guess what? The king's coming. The countdown started, the king is coming, and hence that is going to be the good news that's largely preached during the tri- in the tribulation period. The king is coming, the kingdom is going to be at hand, he's getting ready to come back, and people there that believe in Jesus are going to be pumped about that. They're going to be excited about that because that's going to be really good news for them. And so again, the gospel of the kingdom was simply this, good news, King Jesus is here, He's ready to establish the long-awaited kingdom of God on earth. When someone believed that message, they publicly identified that message by going underwater. That was what was going on here with Jesus in terms of his ministry alongside of John the Baptist. Now, when John the Baptist was put into prison, we see that the gospel of the kingdom and the primary messenger of this message became Jesus and his disciples because John the Baptist was shut away. And so we see this developed in the synoptics. Again, the synoptic gospels being Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John, it's not his focus, right? What was John's focus? Well, he tells us in chapter 20. He wanted to give a a select, select grouping of signs, seven of them, to convince you and I to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That was his purpose, not to develop all of the eschatology uh, end times, you know, kingdom type teaching from the Old Testament. That's what Matthew did. Matthew took care of that development. So if that was the case, and those of you that are thinking people, you're like, well, if that's true, then why wasn't an earthly kingdom established when Jesus came? If it was near, if the king was at hand, why wasn't this earthly kingdom established? Well, we found our answer, ironically, in John 1. 
clearly and succinctly stated. It says, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. You see, the nation of Israel rejected Jesus Christ. They rejected their king. God says, here's your king. And the nation of Israel said, we don't want him. We don't want him. In fact, later, as Jesus is under custody of Pilate, you remember what they said? Tragic thing they said. They, Pilate said, here's your king. And they said, what did they say? You, get, you guys know, we have no king but Caesar. Ugh. Do not stand next to me when you say that. Man, that's, that's dangerous words coming out of their mouth. But you can see that is their attitude toward King Jesus. Now, the official rejection of Jesus happened in Matthew chapter 12. We know that as the unpardonable sin. You know, we talked about, we kind of joked about that last week. But the unpardonable sin is simply this. Again, sorry, I, I feel like I'm dropping a can of worms and then not letting anyone look at it because we're moving quickly through some of this stuff. But the unpardonable sin is this. It's observing verifiable prophesied messianic miracles in the person of Jesus Christ. And when seeing them, identifying him, being able to do that through the power of Satan. That's the unpardonable sin. It could be committed in Jesus's day as he's doing verifiable miracles, but it couldn't, it can't, this particular sin cannot be committed today because Jesus is not on earth performing verifiable messianic miracles. And so again, don't have time to develop that completely, but that is the official rejection in Matthew. In fact, when you trace the, the uh, kind of the flow of Matthew from that point forward, you're going to see in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus begins teaching in parables, okay, about the kingdom, parables to, to reveal truth to his disciples, but to hide them from others. And then you're going to see he's going to start in Matthew 16, start talking about the church. End of Matthew 16, he's going to start talking about his death and how he's going to be betrayed and how he's going to suffer crucifixion and how he's going to rise again. And he begins to shift his message toward that. And you can kind of trace that through the book of Matthew. And so again, once this official rejection happened, the kingdom offer was postponed to a later date as divine judgment. And in his divine judgment, Jerusalem and her destruction was set. And again, we see even at the end of Matthew, Jesus predict this. They rejected the Messiah. God would divinely judge the people. And that happened in 70 AD when the city was sacked, the temple was destroyed. And so that's just a historical fact. That's when it happened. That's kind of just a quick side note there. Like, why was Jesus baptizing all of a sudden? It was in conjunction. We put it together with the other gospel accounts. This is what was going on. They're, they're preaching this message. Now, John is going to give us another uh, time indicator in verse 24. Okay, so they're out there baptizing people. But he says this, for John uh, had not yet been thrown into prison. This explains to his readers, well, why is John baptizing people? I thought he ended up in prison. He said, well, he's not, he wasn't there yet. He was still involved in his ministry. So it kind of gives us a time stamp here. And so he gives us this identifying event. And, and what it does, and, and, and I think why he's doing it, is it's going to give us this lead up, if you will, this, this background so to speak, of John's final recorded testimony of the value and person of Jesus Christ. I believe the Spirit of God wanted to take these words and put them in our Bible so that we could be excited about the person of Jesus Christ just like John the Baptist was. It's a very succinct life goal here. He must increase, I must decrease. And if, and if you just walked around in your life and repeated that and actually believed that and were persuaded by that, and everything that you did and prioritized in life, you would do well in this life because you're occupied with the Lord Jesus. 
And what happens when you look at Jesus? What happens when you behold Jesus? What happens when you're occupied with Jesus? Good things happen. <laughs> That's a summary. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says the Spirit of God changes you, transforms you into his image when you do that. And so it's awesome stuff. We're going to see what John is doing. And although it's not pertinent to John's account, if you're interested and you want to read about it later, Matthew 14, 3 through 12, Matthew 14, 3 through 12, or Mark 6, 17 through 29, gives the account of John the Baptist's arrest and execution. Really quickly, basically John the Baptist uh, criticized the politician. Politicians don't generally like that. Politicians actually in uncivilized societies do exactly what this politician did. They get very murderous thoughts. And so he criticizes Herod the, the Tetrarch because he said, it's not lawful for him to take your brother's wife. Go figure. You mean I can't steal my brother's wife? What's wrong with that? Right? And so he's, he, he gets criticized for that. He doesn't like John. His wife, who used to be married to his brother, doesn't like John now. They both want him dead, but they don't have the power to do that. But she held it against him. And hell hath no fury than a woman scorned. And she kept this hatred for John in the back of her mind, always crafting in her mind, how can I get this guy? How can I get this guy? Well, they did arrest him and keep him in jail. He didn't have power to do it. He hated John too. And we also know in Matthew 14, 5, he was afraid of the multitudes because they considered John a prophet. So he's kind of stuck, you know? His wife is flaming hot mad. He's trying to keep her off his back. He puts him in jail. He doesn't like the guy either, but he really can't do much more than that. So Herodias, the wife, devises a plan. She had her grown daughter. Just what a class act this lady was, right? She has her grown daughter perform a sensual dance in front of Herod in a group of people in a party when they're drunk. And he goes bonkers hog wild for this dance. And he says, oh my goodness, ask me anything that you want and I'll do it for you. Well, she had been put up with her mom when he says that, which is crazy. She knew enough about her husband to know that he would be a pervert, basically. When, <laughs> sorry, when, when, when she does that, she puts her up to say, I want John the Baptist's head on the platter. Now, what normal person says that? Go chop that guy's head off and bring it. One thing, we want John the Baptist killed. Okay. No, cut his head off and bring it back on a platter, like, you know, since we're having a meal. It's weird, right? It's perverse. It's evil. This is what ends up happening to John the Baptist. But all of this is before them. And so kind of follow the train of thought here as we get into verse 25, because there's this philosophical dispute that's going to arise between some of John the Baptist's disciples and um, some of the Jews or probably representatives of the Pharisees. It says, then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And so it's this debate, this philosophical inquiry on religious purification. Again, they're, they're viewing the water baptism as some kind of religious ritual and isn't that exactly what religious people do? They get hung up on the externals. They, they just get hung up on the externals. They miss everything that's of value internally. And this is what the Jews are doing here. In fact, the dispute arose. It means it came to be, it came into existence. And the thing that came into existence was this dispute. Interesting word in the Greek. It means to seek. And it came to be used by the Greeks to indicate a philosophical inquiry. Now, those of us that have grown up in America, 
we've probably been involved in some philosophical inquiries every now and then. Some of them are good, right? People just bouncing ideas on the wall. We call that whiteboarding. Oh, yeah, good idea. We write them up on the whiteboard. We're bouncing off of each other. Lots of good things happen often when there's discussions that go on. This is not the intent of this word. The intent of this word, you've also been involved in these kind of philosophical inquiries. It's an exchange of words with no desire to find the truth. Let me, let me just tell you what I think it is, and let me, let me just debate and, and parse word endings, and, and, and we never get anywhere, but boy, we feel like we really talked about something deep. You know, it's like what a, what a friend of mine, a pastor friend of mine said years ago about the, the Bible studies. You get together, no one's, no one's studied the text. You start talking about the text. You come in with one interpretation. You leave with eight, and you say, wow, that was deep. And it's like, no, that was bad. <laughs> Coming away with eight different interpretations when there's only one biblically, not a good thing, right? And so that's kind of what's going on here. There's just this philosophical debate. They're really not get interested in getting out of the truth. They're, they're, they're asking questions. You've known people like this when they're asking you a question, but they're really making a statement of condemnation through their question. You know the type of people. I mean, we, we know those people. Hopefully you're not those people, but because those people we don't like generally. This is exactly what they're doing with John the Baptist and his disciples. They love word disputes, and this is what they're doing uh, rather than really trying to figure out the, the truth. Now, a couple of just subtle observations here that I, that I cannot, I can't pass up. I can't, I can't pass up. They're just too interesting to me. Hopefully, they're interesting to you. But again, notice who the dispute was between, what the dispute was about. John the, John the Baptist's disciples and the Jews, and it was about purification. So even though there's not much more said about John the Baptist's disciples, they're, they're part of the equation going forward, we do know something about them. If they're still with John the Baptist up at Anion, where are they not? They're not with Jesus. That's a problem. Because the whole point of John the Baptist's ministry was to do what? Shoo people to Jesus. These guys were locked in on John the Baptist. They had missed the point. In fact, when they report back to John, uh, back in um, verse 26, they say, yeah, that guy that you, you testified about, that dude that you, they didn't even name him by name. They don't, they don't say, yeah, you know, the Messiah that you identified. They're like, oh, that dude, that, you know, that guy, you, you, you know, that guy you said, that thing about the lamb and him. He's, he's up there baptizing. I mean, this is what they do. They don't even mention him by name. So these guys are just super locked in. We saw back in John 1, 35 through 37, it took Andrew and John one testimony, and they were like, later, John, we're going with him. And John was probably there going, good, proud of you, go. This is what I'm here for is to point you to him. So don't stick with me. These guys stuck with him. And you know, historically, even present day, that there are still sects of John the Baptist's disciples around the world devoted to John the Baptist. You talk about missing the point of his message. Goodness sakes, a lie. But these are those guys. They're still with him here. The Jews here mention, again, it's uh, the, these unbelieving, unsaved, hostile Jews. John's used it this way. You can kind of see the cross references there so far in this book. So that's who's involved. They're, 
discussing purification. It's a cleansing ritual. It was a, you know, a, a, a religious ritual they're talking about. And here's the point. They're identifying John's and probably Jesus's baptism as some kind of ritual purification. You know, it's like tribal people oftentimes is they won't even go to the river the day of a baptism because they're afraid that those people's sins washed off in the water. And they're like, man, I don't want to get there. There's sin on me. I'm like, don't worry, you got enough of your own. You know, don't worry about getting more on you. But it's kind of this, this ritualistic thinking of water purification. This is exactly what they're arguing about. And, and what's so crazy is they had missed the point uh, again of John's teaching. Many of these Jews had come out and listened to John. And what did he say? You remember what he said back in John? He said, I baptize with water, but there's one coming after me who does what? He baptizes with the spirit and with fire. And that's the baptism. You want real, that's what we would call real baptism. Water baptism is just ritual baptism. Ritual baptism points to the real baptism. That's true in the life of the believer. Why do believers get baptized? Why is that part of the Great Commission? Because we're simply, simply giving a public testimony of something that's already happened to us when the Spirit of God baptized us into the body of Christ the moment we believed. And that water baptism just pictures that real baptism. Even our water baptism is ritual. Trust me, if we wanted to let the kids swim in the baptismal after a baptism, they would be fine. You know, as long as they had their floaties on. It does, it's probably a little over their head back there. But they were caught up on the ritual, though. That's the point. They're still arguing here. May have been a similar dispute they had earlier in John 1. And this is going to provide us the background from which Jesus's, or John's disciples now approach him about Jesus in the next verse. And this really leads up to John's final testimony of Jesus. And so it's this debate, as they're arguing with the Jews, then they come over to John and they say, you know what, John, we've got an intel report for you. You know, you're, you're busy with ministry. We're kind of watching out for you, my man. We're, we're hearing things down, down river. The, the, the guy that you pointed to, uh, more people are going to him. The crowds are starting to leave and go to him. We got a problem, man. We got to prove our ad strategy. We got we to gotta get your name out more. We're some, somehow, maybe can you scream louder? Can you eat more locusts? Can you, you know, you know, I don't know, gargle honey? Can you do something to keep these crowds? And I'm kind of making some of that up. But, I, but do something to keep these crowds from going. And they viewed Jesus's popularity over John as a threat to John's ministry. And they were like, we got to stop this at all costs. And you can kind of see it in the way they, they speak here. Verse 26, they view Jesus at some level as a threat to John's ministry. Verse 26, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, uh, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. And so, uh, again, this, this was the, the impetus for them motivating John, giving him an update of what's going on, this argument over purification. And as I mentioned before, what's somewhat ironic and I think telling about John the Baptist's disciples at this point, they don't even call Jesus by name. You know, I, you, would, you would think that if they just said, you know the one that you identified as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? That if they even said that again to themselves, they'd be like, oh, what am I doing here? I want to be with that guy. You know, why am I over here with the JV team when I can be with the varsity team, right? 
Why, why am I over here on the bench when I can be with the all-star? It, it's kind of neat, but this is what they had chose at this point. Now, we don't know when these particular disciples came into John's ministry. Maybe it was after John had testified, but what we're going to learn is even the word used here when they said, you've testified, it's perfect tense. In other words, you've done it before and you continue to do it. You, you continue talking about it. It wasn't like John just said that one time. It's like, all right, let me go back to my ministry now. I'm going to focus on this. Jesus was the focus of his ministry. So once he knew who he was, he was like, just calling him out, naming him out, identifying him. This was the whole purpose of why he had the ministry he had. And so if this is the case, if they were holding on to John, understand this. And this is what's so ironic. They were more supportive of John the Baptist's ministry than the very one that John the Baptist was serving and pointing to. Can you imagine? They're, and they're, they're irritated. We're going to see again as we continue to look through the language here that they are just irritated by the fact that Jesus is taking the crowds from them. I mentioned this, the word testified is, is giving a testimony, perfect tense, meaning that at a point in time in the past, he identified him. We see that in John 1, that Jesus was the Messiah, and he continued identifying him. In other words, even if they weren't there in John 1, where we read, they've heard John talk about Jesus. And the best they come up with is, you know that dude that you, you know, you know the guy you keep talking about? Maybe, maybe John, you're, maybe you're talking about him too much because there's more people going to him. Maybe you should stop talking about him. I mean, who knows what they're thinking here, right? But they're a little irritated. And so it just kind of tells us again a little bit more about these disciples and where they were at in their thinking. Now, one of the words they use is, uh, uh, you, can, you can see this, it's translated behold in verse 26. It's, uh, it's an, um, an exclamation uh, a way to say something, I think I wrote, yeah, it's a particle of exclamation. That's what I was trying to say. It, it's, like, it, it's like our version of an exclamation point. It's, it's like yelling at someone, look. You know, if I, if I was up here and I saw a big, by the way, those that are visiting, this is a, there's no snakes back here. But if, I, but if I saw a snake back there and I said, and I wanted to use this word, behold, look, you know, I would, I would scream it, look. And you would, you know, insert exclamation point, right? And on an English speaker, this is exactly what they're doing. They're like, behold, look, you know, exclamation point. He's baptizing and all are coming to him. And so they're concerned because Jesus is now engaging in a baptism ministry. They sensed with the crowds, the energy of the crowds leaving that John the Baptist may soon lose relevance. And again, their dedication was to John and his ministry not to the one's ministry to whom John was trying to point them to. See, they, they're turning ministry into a popularity contest. They're upset that Jesus is more popular than John. They're making it about him and not him. And insert your application here <laughs> for each one of us. This, is, this hits home. It, how many times... Do we, uh, maybe even unwittingly, make it about us and not about him? Insert your application right there. Because this is a very common thing. And as, uh, you know, Terrell Owens, although he, you know, the Cowboys are kind of curing me of liking football. But Terrell Owens, an old Dallas Cowboy football player, used to say, I love, I love us some us. I love me some me. And, you know, many times that's exactly how we live our Christian life. 
We're so occupied of ourselves. We don't even think about what Jesus would want. We're so occupied with our ministry that sometimes Jesus gets in the way of us doing ministry. I mean, that's our mindset. And if we think we don't get there, just look at the letters to the churches in Revelation. That's exactly what Laodicea did. If you walked into the doors of the church of Laodicea and you talk to the pastor there and you say, how's the ministry going here? Oh, it's going great. It's going awesome. We got a new building. We're adding wings. We got, we're filling the nursery. We got, uh, you know, the elderly involved in the church. We're doing this. We're doing this ministry, doing that. And what was Jesus's report card of the church? It wasn't like, yeah, you're not quite as good as you think. Yeah, you're almost there. You're wretched. You're blind. You're miserable. You're naked. And I've been stuck outside the door trying to get into the church for the last two hours. And you're not letting me in. And see, Christians can get this way too. So John the Baptist's disciples, they are a great illustration for us of a faulty application. And so John, I love John's response. He he understands their concern. As a great teacher, he provides a real quick general principle on ministry in general. We're going to kind of see that in verse 27. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. He's going to tell his disciples, look, look, ministry success has got one source. That's it. True ministry success has one source. And this phrase, can receive, it combines two verbs. Can, inherent ability, receive, to take in whatever manner, uh, receive or to actively take. But he negates it, right? No one can just grab this kind of success. That, it's true success, true, true biblical success. No one can merely take that or will it to happen. No one can do that. John is just pointing out at just a very general principle on ministry. And he recognizes the big, pe- big picture. If people are going now directly to the source, then it must be time for them to go directly to the source. That's okay. Because God is obviously transitioning John in his stage of ministry. John is going to be looking at smaller and smaller crowds going forward. He's going to be looking at smaller and smaller crowds. And eventually, he's not going to have any crowds because he's going to be in a six by eight, right? Not going anywhere. And, and so that's going to happen here shortly. And so he's subtly reminding the disciples, it doesn't matter whose ministry is more popular. Do, do we believe that? Like we, we make... How do, we, how do we make ministry a competition? How do we do that? And it's like, I don't know, but we do. We do. I jokingly say, I don't really like, I, oftentimes I don't like going to pastor's conferences because everyone is comparing the size of their church. And I don't give a rip about any of that. I mean, I'm, we're glad you're here. Don't get me wrong. But, but size of the church does not indicate successful ministry, and we've got to get that through our head. Big church doesn't mean success. Small church doesn't mean not success. Small church doesn't mean success. Big church doesn't mean lack of success. It's like, it's just a wrong data point. It's just a wrong data point. The success is, are you teaching the word of God? Are you exalting Jesus Christ? Are people responding to the message? That's success. You're you out there are part of the success of this church, not based on what the community thinks of us, but based on what the Lord Jesus wants to accomplish in this local body at this season of life, at this season of history. That's, that's what it's all about. He must increase, right? We must decrease. That's the whole point. This is where John is going to go. The fact that people are leaving him and going to Jesus 
is something that John recognizes as a, an, an ordained divine shift, and he's okay with it. We're going to see he's very okay. In fact, he, he, I think, knew this was coming. I think he felt like if he did his ministry successful, this day would come. He knew it was coming, and this is what he's emphasizing. And so he's going to give an example uh, that they would understand in the next few verses. Kind of a funny example when you think about it, but he's basically going to give this an example. And his, his question for them is, so what's your problem here? I, I don't get the issue. Have you ever had somebody approach you and go, oh man, we got a big problem. And then they, you're like, oh man, you mean your heart rate goes up. You're like, oh what? Oh wow. This is going to be a big problem. And then they get through and you're like, what's the, okay, I'm sorry. What, what's the problem? <laughs> you know, it's a big problem to them. But, but overall, it's not a big problem. And I kind of view John responding that way here uh, in verses 28 through 29. Let's look at what he says in, ter- in terms of the example. He says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. You know, his disciples have heard him say multiple times. We have it recorded in John 1, I'm not the Christ. You understand that, guys, right? You, the fact that people are leaving, that's okay. If they're going to the Christ and they're not coming to me, it's okay. I'm not the Christ. And he reminds them that he has stated that. You know what's also implied in that statement, although I think it's subtle, is, so why are you guys still here? Why, why aren't you going with the multitudes? Like, What's, what's going on? This is not a problem. In fact, you guys have a problem. You're sticking with me. That's the problem. You need to be going to him as well. And that's kind of, I think, implied here. And again, he reminds them that he was simply sent before the Christ. And again, we've seen that in John 1, alluded to it, uh, as well as in, in Isaiah 43, Malachi 3, you see the cross-reference verses. And now to illustrate this point further, <laughs> I think John uses a very funny example. And it's funny because it makes so much, it makes so much sense. It's just a, a great illustration for these guys. It translates into our culture as well. And it's simply this. When you go to a wedding, the best man doesn't get jealous of the groom when the bride goes home with him that night. He kind of knows that's going to happen. He, he kind of assumes he's not going to end up with the girl at the end of the day. Hey, that, that's been decided right? Many times before. In fact, the best man is usually what? Ecstatic, thrilled. Have you heard best man speeches? Some of them on the internet, look at the funny ones. They're hysterical. They're pumped. They're pumped their buddy's getting married. They're pumped their buddy found someone that actually looks halfway normal, right? Because they're kind of worried about him for many years. Is he ever going to meet a normal girl? Oh, he finally found a gem, boy, you better lock this down. You know, like, can, we, can we speed up this ceremony so she doesn't change her mind? I mean, he's pumped for, the, pumped for the groom. And this is exactly what John's saying. Guys, I'm the best man. He's the groom. When the crowds or the bride goes to him, I'm pumped. Why, why are you sad? It's like, you know, friends of the best man, they're in the crowd and they're all crying after the wedding. It's like, what's wrong with you? Well, she went home with the groom. What? <laughs> Why would you be upset with that? And this is kind of how John walks him through here. 
He who has the bride, again, has means to have and to hold. The one that's marrying the bride is the bridegroom. And in this example, Jesus is the groom. The crowds are compared to the bride, and John the Baptist is simply a friend of the groom. And again, he's just making a point. It would be foolish for him to get upset when the bride goes to the groom. Why would you get upset about that? Again, the bride wasn't the best man's bride. She was the groom's bride. And so what we're going to see is that the friend is described in three ways, kind of interesting, as one who stands, used in the perfect tense. It means he, he stands and he remains standing, probably in honor of the bride and the groom, to stand and honor his, his friend. And um, we see that he hears him, meaning that, and that's, that's a great best man, right? The day of the wedding, what do you need, man? What do you need? What can I get for you? How can I help? How, what, what can I do? I can call these people. I can check on this. That's what, he, what he's doing. He's listening to him with the idea of responding and, and, and helping out. He's really paying attention to the needs and, and directing people to him. And then he is one who rejoices greatly be, because of his voice. And he's just purely joyful to know that the bride is now, the crowds are now going out to the groom. He's pumped about that. And so based on that example, it gives us this really quick summary statement he says, and you can see the conclusion there, good, good Bible study word there uh, in verse 29, therefore, right? Uh, this is the example. Here's my conclusion. Therefore, guys, my joy is fulfilled. My, my joy is overflowing. You guys are all bent out of shape. I'm pumped. You guys are worried about my ministry. I don't give a rip about that. I love the fact that people are going to Jesus Christ. This is how he's pumped. In fact, the word joy that John uh, uses here, it's, it's articulated. It's the joy. It's emphatic. This is, he, he's very glad. That's probably the best way uh, to say it. In fact, it's fulfilled. It just means he's overflowing. It's kind of that. So this is what you would use to, if you filled up a pitcher of water and he just says, I'm, I'm fulfilled. Perfect tense. I'm continuing to remain filled up hearing this. It's like they brought him the news. They thought John would be all worried. And John's like, hallelujah. And they're, they're just not expecting that response, basically. So he illustrates this for him. And, and I think for John, this just brought him full circle. Because when he started his ministry, not really even having had the Messiah identified, not knowing how long he was going to have to preach. And now he's seen him, he's identified him, and now people are listening to him to go out to him. And he's just like, this is what I live for. You know, this is why I get up in the morning. And finally, he's, he's there. And so that brings us to verse 30. And I think there's really two goals that we can describe in this verse. Very simple, breaks down very easily. Verse 30, goal number one, Jesus Christ must increase. Goal number two, I must decrease. This isn't about me and Jesus increasing. This is about me learning how to stay out of the way and exalt the one who died for you and rose again in our thinking so that you're not tied to any human messenger or servant ever in your lifetime that you are simply enthralled with the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. That's the goal. This is the goal of any ministry that any of us are involved in. I love how John says this. He must, he uses a Greek word day. It's necessary. It's inevitable. It has to happen this way. Guys, you are worried about my popularity. This, don't worry about that. He's got to increase in status and popularity. I'm going to decrease in status and popularity, and I'm okay with that is what John is going to tell us. 
Again, it's inevitable. It, this present time, and, and why is that? Because the universe is about the Messiah. It will always be about Jesus Christ. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. When we're singing 10,000 years from now, guess what? You're still going to be enthralled with Jesus Christ. You might as well get started on it now. <laughs> why wait till then, right? When you can begin to enjoy him today and enjoy him tomorrow and enjoy him 10,000 years from now and 100,000 years and a million. And I know that's mind-blowing, but welcome to the, to the world of Jesus Christ where he does blow your mind all the time. This is what John was saying. You know, he's not surprised by this. He knows that this is the process, that he's been leading up to this point. And so he must decrease, diminish, make less, decrease in rank, status, or reputation. His role, again, was to point others to Jesus Christ and then get out of the way. And what's really interesting about the verb tense and decreases, it's, it's a passive voice. And what that indicates is somebody outside of John caused this to happen to him. Again, who? God himself. That was the plan of the whole ministry of John the Baptist. Let's get him some crowds. Let's let people hear. Once they start hearing and responding, they're going to leave him and go to the Messiah. That's exactly how I designed it. John is decreasing. In, in other words, it's not something he intentionally did. Now, as we kind of close this morning, I can tell you as I sit here today that none of us have the same role as John the Baptist. We don't have the same role. If, if you look to the person next to you, you don't even have the same role as the person next to you in terms of fulfilling this goal. But I will tell you this, each one of us should have this goal dictate our lives. This should be our goals. This is what we should aspire to. Not just saying it and repeating it because we know that the verse says it, but actually believing it and, and living our lives accordingly and prioritizing our lives accordingly. We've got the same goal. He must increase. I must decrease. At the end of the day, as a human, I love if someone loves me. We're all like that. We like to be liked. We like to be loved. We like to be thought well of. But at the end of the day, you know what's even more important than that? That Jesus Christ is liked and loved and exalted and thought well of. And he can do that in and through each one of our lives. And this needs to be the goal. I'm reminded of a missionary to India. Many of you will recognize his name, William Carey. As he was dying, he, he turned to his friend. He didn't say, give me more water. Give me more pain medication. It, uh, lift up my feet. As he was dying in his very last breath, he said this, when I'm gone, don't talk about William Carey. Talk about William Carey's savior. And he said, I desire that Christ alone might be magnified. Basically, don't tell people how great I am. Tell them how great my Savior is. And may that be the heart cry of each one of us. Let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, I, I do thank you. And that is my prayer, even this morning, Lord, that we leave this room with just a more highly exalted view of the Lord Jesus than when we came in. And, and may you just increase that. For each one of us throughout the week, may we just be more and more enamored with him, um, occupied with him as we go about our daily life. Lord, we, we all have things going on in our lives. We so many things to distract us, Lord, but may Jesus Christ uh, in our thinking just shine forth as the one, the only one who can meet all of the needs of our heart. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.